Do ABA strategies feel rigid to you? Liz Willis, an SLP and BCBA, is on today to share tips for utilizing a naturalistic, play-based behavioral approach to teaching speech and language. Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Hey everybody, welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today, I'm joined by Liz Willis, a pediatric speech language pathologist and behavior analyst in Morris County, New Jersey. Liz has worked with children with a wide range of needs, including developmental disabilities, speech articulation and phonological disorders, apraxia of speech and language delays. She has extensive experience in working with children with autism and other complex communication needs. Liz enjoys working closely with parents and families to promote generalization and maximize progress for children with whom she works. She provides family-centered direct therapy services and also offers parent and caregiver training on a variety of topics within the area of speech, language, and behavior. Hi, Liz. Hi, Vanita. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm so happy to have you on the show, and I can't wait to get to know you better. So why don't we start with how you got started and kind of where you're at now. Um, I started as a speech therapist, so I am a speech therapist and behavior analyst, but I, I consider myself, you know, a speech therapist first and foremost. Um, so I studied at Penn State, um, got my degree in speech therapy. I went to undergrad and grad school there and then started out in the field. And I think probably similar to other therapists felt like I was just kind of thrown in there. <laughs> and my first placement actually was in a school setting and I had a caseload of like 85 to 90 students Um, and I was just completely overwhelmed um, obviously as a new therapist learning the ropes but I also had a couple of autism classrooms that I was supporting and I just felt like you know my students were making progress but I felt like I was just missing missing something in my training Um, and I actually was fortunate enough to work alongside some consultants from the Pennsylvania Autism Initiative Um, in Pennsylvania. I was working in Chester County, Pennsylvania, and really learned a lot from them about applied behavior analysis and um, just felt like I could better support my students with with what I had, had been learning from them. So I ended up getting another position, but still working with children with autism, um, and then decided to pursue my BCBA certification. So that's kind of how that evolution happened. Um, And I feel very fortunate that I have both backgrounds because I I utilize kind of my knowledge in both fields a lot in my practice. So 
Um, I currently work for the Chester County Intermediate Unit in Pennsylvania. Um, I live in New Jersey, as you mentioned, so I actually have been working remotely for several years, which is um, kind of lucky in this current state of affairs that we're in. So I'm used to providing service online. Um, and I work as a telepractice coordinator for my organization. Um, so helping other therapists provide service via telepractice, as well as um, an autism consultant and then provide some direct service. And I also own a small private practice, Communication and Behavior Solutions, and that's where I work primarily with, with kids with autism and support families. So that's kind of the evolution. <laughs> That's amazing. So with your private practice, is that in-person or teletherapy? So it's moved to teletherapy, but it, it was um, in-person service. So providing some direct service and consultation, but now it's, it's actually moved um, to virtual consultation. And I'm actually providing, which has been really fun, some social skills groups virtually. So that's been different and, and a big learning experience for me. So Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. What age group? Um, I'm work primarily preschoolers. So my, my job with the Chester County Intermediate Unit is preschool. And then um, with my private practice, it's preschool as well. So the little guys. Oh, cute. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about social engagement and how you promote that with early learners with autism. Yeah, it's a big topic. And I know, you know, we had discussed some of the things that we wanted to talk about um, today. And I, I looked back and, and thought about my <laughs> desire to talk about social engagement. I was like, wow, that's, that's a really hefty topic here. Um, I'm really still learning a lot about how to work with really early learners with autism and how to promote social engagement. But I think it's so, so important. Um, obviously, one of the primary deficits in kiddos with autism is in social communication. And I think as therapists, or at least in my training, I didn't receive a lot of training in how to really target that, that social piece. Um, you know, most of my training was in how to teach language and how to teach, you know, speech articulation. So I think as a therapist, I felt comfortable in doing that, but that is such an important piece, that social engagement and social interaction and social reciprocity in um, individuals with autism. And so I, I quickly realized that that's an area that I needed more support in and needed to learn more about. So I've been, just been kind of trying to follow a lot of the experts in the field and have really learned a lot over the years about how to work with early learners with autism and how to take um, social behavior into consideration. So I would say one thing that I've learned and, and one of the, the things that I try to consult speech therapists and other educators on is to really establish a good rapport with the students that they're working with right away. Um, I think oftentimes we try to jump into instruction a little bit too quickly and overlook that, that um, rapport building piece. So I try to tell other therapists to make sure that they are observing what their students are doing kind of when left th to their own devices. So make sure you're taking the time to step back and observe and do sort of like a preference assessment and see how the child is utilizing their environment, what they're going to, what, they're, what items they're interacting with, and see what qualities of those items that they're interacting with 
are reinforcing to that child. So for example, if you have a child that's, you know, likes to tap, what is it about that um, interaction do they like? Is it the sound? Is it the, the surface that they're tapping on? Um, is it the um, speed that they're tapping? Really looking at those intricate preferences and then trying to uh, join in to that activity and make whatever they're doing better as opposed to kind of taking things away and starting with demands. So I think my main recommendation is to take a step back and observe and then try to embed yourself within those interactions and make those interactions better. I love that. Really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. In terms of a preference assessment, do you have a particular form that you prefer to use or do you just kind of do it through your observation? I, it's more so through observation, and I've actually, there's a, um, another colleague that I've been talking to about this topic. Um, his name is Braxton, and he, I think, is in the process of developing something like that. Um, I oftentimes will send home preference assessments to the parents or talk to the teachers about what the kiddos have been liking in the classroom, but it's more so through observation at this point and writing down kind of what I'm seeing and, and the, the sensory aspects of those preferences. Okay, great. So I want to dive in a little bit more into that social engagement piece. So you're talking about establishing a good rapport, doing a preference assessment, doing an observation. How do you then facilitate that social engagement with like other peers, possibly in your social groups? What kind of techniques are you using? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think another thing that I have found is that a lot of times we're we're jumping too quickly to like peer interaction before really we establish a strong rapport with an adult or an instructor. So oftentimes I'm, I'm taking my time before I'm introducing peers or trying to um, work on social interaction in a peer setting. So when I'm looking at my really, really early learners with autism, so the learners who may engage in a lot of stereotypy or stimming behavior or have very restricted preferences, um, I'm really trying to establish myself as a reinforcer or someone that they're motivated to interact with. And I think the steps to get to then that peer interaction, um, you know, that that definitely takes a little bit more time. But Another thing that I try to do prior to, if I am looking at a, a student where I want to encourage more peer interaction is making sure that child has some really strong play skills, some strong independent and functional play skills. Because if you look at the interactions between kiddos that are you know, toddlers and preschool age, almost all of it is happening in the context of play. So I'm really trying to work on play skills first, almost as a prerequisite to being able to then engage in um, more meaningful social interaction. That's really good. And that's something we were going to talk about. So let's dive into that, how you use a naturalistic play-based behavioral approach to teach speech and language. Yeah. So um, I think one thing I'm not sure how many listeners know about ABA, but I think one, one thing is you know, one reason the ABA gets kind of a bad rep sometimes is because it's it's thought of as um, very like structured, strict, like at the table kind of discrete trial instruction. When, in fact, um, a lot of what I do and what a lot of you know what some of the other behavior therapists that I work with do is embed practice into play. Um, and 
I, I try to embed practice into play and routines as much as possible. Um, just because, you know, you're, you're kind of already programming for generalization right from the start, right? So we don't have to move from like teaching a skill in an isolated tabletop kind of discrete trial activity and then generalize it to the play setting or the, you know, whatever routine to make it meaningful. You're kind of, you're starting where you want to see that skill generalize already. So I just try to look at what, what activities are super motivating for the child. Um, and that's going to, you know, be based on that individual child. And then also what routines they're engaged in throughout the day. Um, and I, I think I mentioned that I work, um, all of my service or most of my service, at least now is provided via telepractice. So I'm, I'm using more of a coaching model as well. So I'm really trying to coach the parents on embedding practice into play and embedding practice into their uh, routines, because it's more likely for me to be able to support the parent in those play-based activities and those routines that they're going to be doing from, you know, all day long, day after day, than to teach them how to teach skills within that more structured kind of tabletop environment. That's just not realistic for, for a lot of our families. So yeah, that's, that's been really my go-to approach is really trying to teach in that play setting or in, in a routines-based environment. Yeah, that's great. I love that. What do you find are some of the more common play-based either toys or activities that are your go-tos? Is there any, or is it strictly, like, is it completely variable just given the population? Yeah, that's a great question too. I think I would say for the most part, you know, with, with the early lear- earliest learners, um, because they have some restricted interests, uh, it's going to be highly individualized. But for kiddos that have a little bit more of a foundation in play skills and social skills and um, have a foundation in, in speech and language that you can work with, you know, you can, your the go-to activities of like embedding practice in music and snack time and, um, story time, like those are some of my go-tos. Um, and I really like to help parents embed practice into, into some of those more common routines. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So what are your tips for, for encouraging direction following for children with behavioral challenges? So I, (laughs) I work with a lot of kids that have behavioral challenges. So that's just kind of like the population that I'm seeing. Um, so I've tried to develop for other therapists and and parents kind of a set of go-to strategies. And I've talked about this a little bit on my, um, my social media accounts. So some of the things that I try and support other therapists with, um, are behavioral principles. So there's the use of a promise reinforcer. Um, I use the pre-MAC principle a lot and also behavioral momentum. So those strategies are really common strategies that I think a lot of speech therapists are doing kind of naturally, but may not be kind of calling them by, by those names. So a promise reinforcer is um, basically identifying an item or an activity that is very preferred or highly preferred by the child and showing that item or that activity before you present a demand. So if my kiddo really loves his Mickey Mouse toy, I might show that Mickey Mouse toy and say, um, 
okay, it's time to clean up. And so once they clean up their toys, they recognize that they're gonna get that Mickey Mouse toy. So that's the promise reinforcer strategy. Another strategy is the pre-MAC principle, um, AKA first then. So I think almost every speech therapist knows about this strategy. You know, first complete a non-preferred task and then we can get to the good stuff. So, you know, first let's practice our 10 speech words and then we can um, play a game on ABC, yeah, which is like my, my go-to website these days for online games. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a pretty straightforward one. And then behavioral momentum is another one. And actually I just posted about behavioral momentum because another speech therapist um, friend of mine, Rebecca posted something the other day about making sure to start every speech session with easy skills. Um, which I thought was great. And I I responded to her post and I said, you know, in the world of ABA, we call that behavioral momentum. So starting with easy skills and then moving towards something that's more difficult. So if you're presenting speech words or you're practicing, let's go with a specific example, say you're practicing the F sound, right? And you're working at the word level. You might start with um, some syllable level practice. So say fee, say fee, say fi, say fire. So you're starting with those easy skills to build momentum for that harder skill. Um, And so that's an example with just like kind of speech articulation practice, but you can do the same thing with, um, you know, following directions. If we use the cleanup activity again, um, a lot of kids have difficulties with, you know, transitions and cleanup times. So you might say, hey, um, give me a high five, stand up, okay now it's time to clean up. So you're starting off with two directions that they can easily follow and then presenting the demand to kind of build up that momentum for them to complete, you know, something that's a little bit more challenging for them. Such great advice. Thank you for sharing that. And it's funny that the terminology, I was like, I've never heard this terminology before, but it's like you said, strategies that we've been using as SLPs, uh, just different names. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of what we do in the, you know, the speech world, and I'm, I'm putting quotations here, like the speech world and the ABA world, it's, it's a lot of the same principles and strategies. We're just, you know, calling them by different names. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's such a good point. Um, I am so curious uh, how teletherapy looks with these kiddos that have like the behavioral challenges, how do you get them to attend to the screen? Uh, Are you doing that? Or is it more of a coaching model that you find that you're doing? I'm just really curious what it looks like. Yeah, that's like one of my favorite questions. Cause I I, um, mentioned that I'm a telepractice coordinator for my organization and I try to support other therapists and teachers, um, you know, to really be able to, work towards IEP goals in this virtual environment. And it's, it's so challenging. I think, you know, as therapists and educators, we're, we, you know, can feel very, very skilled at our jobs in person. And now that we're all being asked to, to switch to this virtual environment, it's like, there's so much to learn. But in terms of your question and, and how to switch to the virtual environment and, and working with kids with behavioral challenges, um, I do tend to utilize a coaching approach that I found that to be more successful with a lot of um, the, the population that I work with. Uh, but that comes with this, its challenges as well. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to, as a therapist, to be able to kind of 
work with that student face to face, but it's another thing to be able to then and, and utilize all the, the strategies that, you know, you have in your toolkit, but it's another whole set of skills to be able to coach a parent on how to do that. And I think I, I you know, take a lot from sort of the early intervention model in, in terms of the coaching approach, but some of the things that I have found to be most successful are embedding, like I said, kind of go, going along with the naturalistic play-based approach, like embedding practice into motivating activities and routines, um, as opposed to trying to get, you know, the, the kiddo to come to the screen and engage with something on the screen and have it be more of like a teacher or therapist directed activity. So, um, kind of sometimes showing up to the session, seeing what, what's happening, what's the, the child is doing at home, and then kind of thinking on the fly, okay, this is what they're engaged in. You know, they're playing dinosaurs with mom, or um, we, I just had a therapist that I talked to who, you know, showed up to her session and the kiddo was in the pool. <laughs> and it's like, you got to think on your feet, like how, what are the goals that we're working on? How can we target those in this context? Um, and how can I provide support to the parent to be able to facilitate those interactions? So it's definitely, um, it's kind of a mindset shift to the, to that coaching approach. But if you are able to provide some more like therapist led instruction, I think a lot of those same behavioral strategies apply. So, you know, using promise reinforcers, using a first then strategy, utilizing behavioral momentum, um, you know, having a good routine and a structure to your session are, you know, those are going to continue to be important uh, involving movement breaks um, as well. I think those are really important. The other kind of piece that's not, you know, that you don't need to worry about in person is that looking at the environment. So making sure that um, you work with the the family to set up an optimal environment for learning. So making sure distractions are limited in the environment, um, making sure that, you know, the, the person on the other end is able to sit with the child and help kind of facilitate the session. Um, and then making sure that tech, the technology is, is appropriate for um, the session as well. That, that really is important. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Such good advice. Thank you for sharing that. Don't you wish you could earn ASHA CEUs just for listening to this podcast? It is so inconvenient to find great professional development opportunities at an affordable price that works with your schedule. You're listening to this podcast anyway. Why not earn ASHA CEUs while doing so? That is why we are thrilled to announce that Speechy Side Up is now offering ASHA CEUs through Tassel for select courses. Here's what you get with your Tassel membership. You can earn more than 0.12 ASHA CEUs in one year while you listen to podcasts. You get to complete all of your course requirements in one place and even on your phone. You also get free access to virtual SLP events like SLP Connect and SLP Live conferences. And you get exclusive access to topic-specific groups like behavior, apraxia, AAC, and more. Once your course requirements are met, TASSEL will automatically report your course participation to ASHA. Head on over to tasseltogether.com to learn more. If you decide to join, use the discount code SSUPODCAST, all lowercase, to receive up to 20% off whichever membership you choose. 
I promise these podcast episodes will continue to be free to listen to. You only need to become a member if you want to earn a certificate or ASHA CEUs for the pod courses. But honestly, why not when the membership costs you less than two lattes a month and it's totally worth over $500 in value? My friend, you can keep wishing you could earn ASHA CEUs while listening to this podcast, or you can actually start earning. No more scrambling for CEUs at the end of the year or taking irrelevant courses just because they are affordable. And no more feeling like you're in this alone. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. I think, I mean, I personally, I love the coaching model, but I think when you go from doing in-person direct therapy, it can be hard for the family to make that transition to the coaching model because, but it doesn't mean, you know, that one is like better than the other, but I was talking to another guest recently. She's a professor and uh, she, you know, works in this arena. She actually specializes more in early intervention, but she was saying that it's kind of eye opening to see what type of therapy you were providing directly. If that transition to distance learning is a lot harder because maybe it was too therapist led. Yes. Um, So this has just been really, I think it's a really good transition overall for therapists Mm -hmm. to go this route, but it hasn't been easy. I'm sure for a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. Like it's, it's making, um, kind of a step back. Like one thing that I've recognized is that, you know, we, I guess I should speak for, for myself, but we, we need to do a better job of involving the parents in, in what we're doing and in how we're teaching the child, because yeah, that the transition has been challenging, right? Like we need to, um, you know, if, if, and when we do go back to the world where we're providing face-to-face service, I think we've learned some valuable lessons about really pulling the parents in and utilizing them, you know, in order and teaching them how to teach their kids because we're with them for such a limited amount of time. Um, you know, a, a, a very, very small percentage of, you know, their lives. Right. And so if we can, teach the parent how to support their kiddo, that's going to just enhance progress so much more. Absolutely. And if not the parent, it can still be the teacher, the staff. Yep. That works too. Awesome. So I'd like to talk now about the importance of following a developmental approach when setting goals and teaching this population. Yeah. So I think, um, this is, this is kind of like one of, one of the things that I also talk to therapists and teachers a lot about is, is um, making sure that we're following a developmental approach. So, and, and parents too, I talk to a lot about this topic because I think what happens when, when we're working with a population where they're pretty far behind their, their typically developing peers, that parents are kind of looking at the skills that they should have for their age and really wanting to almost start there. And there's a lot of things that we need, like a lot of foundational skills that we need in order to get them there. So I think having that, being able to have that conversation about why we follow a developmental approach and why it's really important to look at a developmental sequence in um, all of the skills that we're teaching, find out where your child is performing. So, you know, 
perform a really good assessment and then meet your child there, right? And, and make sure you're filling in all the gaps. Um, and I see this a lot, like an example would be jumping from like the one word level to like three or four word utterances too quickly. So recognizing that, you know, even typically developing kids, the, the developmental sequence doesn't go from like one words to four words, right? We go, you know, we learn a lot of vocabulary, like hundreds and hundreds of words um, across different categories and functions and features and all of those, um, you know, different, different types of words before we're getting to the forward level. You know, we're not jumping from one words to four words. We have, there's a progression. So um, kind of making sure to be looking at developmental norms and, and filling in all of the gaps um, is, is something that I make sure to be kind of constantly doing. Oh my gosh. As you were like saying that, I had like the biggest smile on my face ever <laughs> <laughs> because this is the value of someone who has the experience like you do as a speech language pathologist and a BCBA, you can recognize the benefits of both disciplines and there's no disconnect. Like, yeah. you know, it seems so intuitive that when I'm explaining about like core vocabulary or AAC that we don't do those rote phrases first, because if you look at typical development and you just like said it perfectly, I hope you do a lot of like trainings and speaking to, <laughs> um, you know, other BCBAs, but also SLPs. It's not that common knowledge for SLPs either. Like when I first started out, I would start with rote phrases. Um, yep. but I, now that more research is coming out and obviously I've kind of, gotten much more familiar with the field of AAC. I've obviously changed that, but it's just now it's like, aha, yeah, like kids don't speak in three word utterances. We definitely shouldn't start there. So I appreciate you mentioning that, but also like talking about the importance of looking at developmental norms, like across the different areas, whether it's play-based or language or speech. Absolutely. Same thing kind of to connect it back to like the social piece. Like, you know, there are a lot of steps to get to like meaningful social interaction with peers, right? Like we don't, you know, we don't have kiddos that are like six months playing with their peers or interacting with their peers or greeting their peers, right? So we have to kind of look at all of those, those skills and fill in all of those skills before we get there. I think, um, it comes up like you, like you said, like in, in all areas in play in social development in, in, you know, articulation in, um, teaching language skills. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important and I, I love that you have that, that AAC knowledge and are kind of seeing the same things there. Um, cause that's, that's not an area of expertise for me. So you're, you're spearheading the initiative in the AAC world. And I love that. <laughs> Yeah, we need to like tag team on something one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel it's just, it's, it's so crazy to reflect on like so much I've learned throughout the years that I just didn't know when I started as a clinician. Um, and, and all of these things I've really learned along the way. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do is just like spread the awareness. Because when I first started out, it was like, I, I really felt like I had so much to learn. <laughs> Yeah, no, I completely agree. That's the beauty of our field. Absolutely. Do you have a specific like inventory or checklist that you, you like to use when you're looking at the developmental norms across the different areas? You know what? I, I use um, 
the VB map, it's the verbal behavior milestones assessment and placement programming. That's um, something that we use in our classrooms. That's um, an assessment, but then also um, a sequence for teaching skills. But I, I tend to just like kind of pick and choose based on whatever area. So like sometimes I'll, I'll look at the linguist systems norms. Um, you know, sometimes I'll go directly to like the ASHA website or I'll look, um, you know, if I'm looking for like literacy milestones, I'll kind of just do a little bit, bit of research. Um, I don't know that there's one that's all encompassing. And I, I think it is important to kind of look past just your, your kind of go-to resource as well. Cause oftentimes I find that like resources that are supposed to kind of cover it all often miss a lot of really important uh, steps. Yeah, that's great advice. Can you talk a little bit more about the VB map? Because I think that, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if it's developed by BCBAs, but I'm sure it's behaviorally based. Do you mm-hmm. feel like the verbal piece or like the speech and language piece um, follows what we've been taught? Or do you feel like it's more behavior based? Like, I'm curious to know. Yeah, it is more of just um, like a sequence of skills. So it covers, it's, it's language based, but it covers, you know, motor skills, social skills, play. Um, it has the, the section that's kind of related to like speech is called um, echoics. I, I like it because it gives you sort of an, an overview, but I think it's, it's um, definitely not comprehensive enough to, to fulfill like all of the needs, right? Like you, you have to, you can't be utilizing just one assessment and one um, guide to, to guide your programming. So um, I, I, do, I encourage people to kind of look into it because I think it's very useful to paint like kind of a big picture. But again, I try to utilize a variety of different resources um, just to make sure I'm not, you know, missing important things. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. I like that it covers the social and the motor as well. And it seems like it's geared, you know, towards the autism population. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Tool to like, use in conjunction with like another maybe speech and language specific one. Absolutely. Yeah, for speech and language. um, I would definitely like if you're looking at obviously we're all we're mostly speech therapists here. If you're looking at um, speech and language skills, I would probably supplement with another assessment. But I will say that a lot of the learners that I work with, we will um, the the VB map is criterion reference, so it's not a standardized assessment, and and it can give more information than maybe a standardized assessment would in some instances, especially with your early learners. Um, I've attempted standardized assessments with some of the early learners and they're just not really able to, to perform that standardized assessment. So when the standardized assessment is, is not um, giving you information, the VB map is a good supplement. Same with um, the communication matrix I like as well for that. Yeah, yeah, the communication matrix, we use that a lot in the district that I worked for. So okay. I like yeah. that one too, that's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, was there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up today? I don't think so. This was so much fun. (laughs) When you, when you reached out, I was just like, this makes my entire day. 
I've been Aww. waiting for the day to just join this podcast. And I'm very, very excited. <laughs> oh my gosh. That makes me so happy. <laughs> that is awesome. And we are doing like a behavior series. So this is like the perfect fit too. I'm glad that we were able to work it out. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. So if people want to find and connect with you, where can they go? Okay. So my main social media is um, Instagram. So it's act- I have such a long name. It's communication and behavior solutions, but it's shortened to C-O-M-M underscore behavior underscore solutions on Instagram and then communication and behavior solutions on Facebook. And then my website is um, communication and behavior solutions.com. So great. Awesome. And we'll include that in the show notes too, in case anybody has trouble finding it. Okay, good. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Liz. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Until next time. Okay. Before we go, please pause this episode and leave a five-star review or take a screenshot to post on social media. If you're enjoying it, we're celebrating our two year anniversary and we're so close to 100 reviews. Your reviews help this podcast keep going and growing because it lets other SLPs know it's worth the listen and it lets us know what topics you like. My team and I spend a lot of time every week putting these episodes together so they can be ready for you every Wednesday morning. Imagine we're giving you a virtual hug because your support seriously means the world.